0: This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 78. Welcome to
1: the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Okay,
0: today we will discuss the psychology of money with Matt Bodner. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Definitely, Kristen. Well, it's an honor to be here, uh, and I'm really excited to be sharing some insights uh, with your audience. So my background, uh, I'm an investor and entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a partner in a a venture capital firm in, uh, in the States, in Nashville, Tennessee, and we invest across the food spectrum. So we invest in things like farms, uh, restaurants, uh, you know, processing facilities, that sort of stuff. So sort of non-traditional uh, venture investor um, and through that I've always been obsessed with um, a number of really uh, you know, preeminent thinkers in that world, one of which is a guy named Charlie Munger who's Warren Buffett's business partner, right-hand man uh, and an incredible thinker about psychology. As well. And, and one of the things that I, I sort of, as an investor, always was doing a lot of homework studying Warren Buffett, who's one of the most successful, if not the most successful, investors of all time. And I started really getting into Charlie Munger, who's all about psychology, all about how to make rational decisions and how to really objectively understand reality so that you can make the best financial choices. And through that, uh, I ended up sort of, as I say, accidentally creating a podcast. Called the Science of Success, and the podcast is all about um, psychology, making better decisions, and uh, becoming a better version of yourself. And, and you know, it's uh, it. We launched last year, um, and really didn't have any plans or expectations. Uh, had about seven thousand downloads through the end of last year, and then we've had a, over five hundred thousand downloads this year so far. So it's really taken off well beyond what we thought uh, it would be. So uh, it's been great to have these incredible conversations and be able to discover a ton of insights from from people across the sort of psychology spectrum uh, and learn from them.
0: Congratulations on that. So I know that I said I want to talk about money, but are you saying that basically the ideas that you're talking about can also be applied to other things in life, not just money necessarily?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that, and I think this is true of psychology more broadly and positive psychology specifically, there are a number of kind of big ideas, you know, simple things like gratitude, meditation, et cetera, that um, that that really apply and and make sense and make you a more effective thinker, make you a more effective decision maker, make you a more effective person in general, and make you more effective at managing your personal finances. The, and and there's a, you know, it's not about necessarily mastering these highly specific tactics or nuances. It, really the the, the most success in life I found typically derives from just executing the fundamentals and the basics and, and doing the really simple, really easy stuff on a day-to-day basis.
0: Right. So that was my next question. How do you think that psychology of money and success, how they're related? So would you like to build on that or do you just stand by what you just said? Because that is already in itself a, a simple but yet not often executed truth
1: yes and I think you know I think people um, people get caught up in this idea that they have to find the next new thing they have to find the one secret you know the um, the sort of get rich quick scheme or whatever it might be in, in a personal finance context or that one opportunity that's gonna you know blow the lid off and suddenly they're gonna all their financial dreams are gonna come true when in reality if you really look at it most of the people who are really financially successful achieve that by blocking and tackling, by doing the basics, the fundamentals, by mastering the really simple things and not getting caught up in the, uh, the day-to-day sort of, you know, the internet has this tendency to just, there's always new things, new information. There's the new article of 37 things you can do now to, uh, to manage your money more effectively or 37, you know, new things that you can do to be a smarter investor, whatever it might be. And the reality is most of that, 99% of that stuff is noise, right? And if you can discern the sort of the 1% that's signal, which is not hard to discern, most of it's available. And, you know, if you picked up uh, Investing for Dummies or Personal Finance for Dummies or whatever it might be, or uh, a really, really good book about kind of the fundamental building blocks of, of personal finance is uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? If you If you pick up something like that, like there's no great secret to to being successful there's no great secret to being a great investor or or even just having uh, very solid personal finances really it's all about understanding the basics and actually executing them and not getting caught up in the cycle of hunting for the next new thing the next trend the next sort of weird neat trick that's going to be the one chance that you have to to do something different
0: right yeah so i agree that once you kind of once you kind of ha- Piece the things together that makes sense to you. It is easy, but I've also found that cutting through that ninety-nine percent is not that easy at all. And when it comes to money, for example, I mean, when they talk about well, assets to so ta- talk about rich dad, poor dad, which I just reread uh, incidentally two or three months ago, and and that's not something that usually it's just like save, work for forty years, and and save, and and then you know become a millionaire when you're sixty-five. And yeah, that that's not exactly what, you know, Rich Dad Poor Dad says or other things which made sense to me. So do you have any idea of how we can go about this discernment?
1: It takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of time. You know, one of the things that and this goes back a little bit to the idea of investing, but it will circle back around and answer this question. One of the things that I'm obsessed with is is how can I be extremely high leverage? And when I say high leverage, I'm talking about how can I create, it's sort of the Tim Ferriss question, right? How can I create the maximum amount of results, whatever those results might be, uh, with the minimum amount of time, energy, effort, et cetera, right? Because we only have so much time in the day, uh, and, and I constantly wish that I had more time to do more stuff. And so, my quest for high leverage thinking, or or really the levers that move uh, that move life the most, has led me to a couple fundamental conclusions. One of which is that one of the most high leverage things you can possibly do is focus on improving your decision making abilities. Right? Focus on becoming a better and smarter decision making. Hone your mental toolkit. Uh, so that you can have the ability to discern things like that, right? So that you can have the ability to cut through noise, to cut through distraction, and really understand, okay, these are the key pieces that are impacting this particular situation, and I know how the the sort of fundamentals of it interact, and so now I can make a better decision, or now I can rule out a number of different alternatives. And so uh, really refining and honing your decision-making ability cascades through everything in your life right because pretty much everything at the end of the day is decision making and so instead of and this this is sort of the same again the same lesson applied in a slightly different context instead of reading uh you know 10 books about uh you know all these different strategies for trading the stock market or making money or whatever it might be. If you read books that are timeless, that never go out of style, books about how to be a smarter thinker, how to make better decisions, and you focus your energies on that particular subject area, that's where you see the cascading results through everything in your life. And that's how you, you know, there's no, again, there's no easy answer that you flip a switch and suddenly you're able to discern noise from signal. It's rather a gradual buildup of, starting with the really fundamental building blocks of knowledge, adding to them in a systematic way and growing your ability to become a better decision maker.
0: Right, I like that. When we think about, you mentioned before that it's about understanding and then executing on that understanding. And to me, in the middle is this issue of mindset and psychology, which is our expertise, right? So what do you think are the... Some of the most important mindset shifts apart from what you already mentioned, and that's also mindset, like don't be in like neophilia is not helpful. Don't always run after the next best, newest thing, but actually stick with what you're doing. But apart from that, what kind of mindsets do you think are really helpful to become a better decision maker in this case?
1: For decision-making broadly, I would say, uh, and this ties back again to to Charlie Munger, who I mentioned earlier. Charlie Munger has this incredible, uh, really two-piece framework that he uses to describe and understand reality. Um, The first is something that he calls worldly wisdom. And worldly wisdom, and he's like a 90-year-old dude, so a lot of his terms are sort of goofy and clunky sounding and from like the 70s and 80s, but he he uses this term called worldly wisdom and worldly wisdom is essentially the idea that uh, all reality has to respect all other reality right and what that means is that if you have a finding or a conclusion from uh, from finance from economics or from uh, you know sociology or history or whatever it might be or biology they all have to respect each other and they all have in order for one finding to be true it has to also acknowledge the the data and the truths about other findings. And what happened or what has happened, and it's starting to be reversed, but in academia uh, across, you know, uh, across the world, really, knowledge is very siloed. You know, people become experts in one particular domain, and they, they get really, really drilled in on being an expert in that, but they kind of ignore or don't understand the multidisciplinary and cross-disciplinary nature of knowledge and the nature of truth, right? And so... Figuring out basically the the prescription that Charlie Munger offers is the idea of mastering what he calls sort of the 101 of of every major intellectual discipline, right? And the term he uses to describe these, these kind of core principles or core thought constructs is mental models. Uh, some listeners may be familiar with that term, but if you're not, if you if you search around, you can find a lot of people on the internet talking about different mental models. And mental models is essentially a term that describes sort of a, a tool that helps depict part of reality. And the the goal of becoming a really informed, really intelligent decision maker is essentially to build a toolkit of mental models that enables you to. Understand different contexts, different situations, different ways, and things interact, so that you can get to the bottom, get to the fundamental reality, the fundamental truth of whatever that situation may be, and then make an informed and effective decision. Um, and I'm I'm definitely happy to recommend a couple books. There's there's two that I think if you if you're interested in going down the path of Charlie Munger, um, there's a book called Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is kind of a story of his life, and then. Uh, really the precursor where they describe much more in detail how he came to this conclusion and and sort of shares a lot of the insights and and some of the mental models that, that he's incorporated into his life. The other book, which I would recommend you read Poor Charlie's Almanac before you read this, uh, but there's a book called Seeking Wisdom. Incredible book, probably the most information dense book I've ever read. Um, and I'm very I, when I read a book, I highlight it, put a lot of notes in it. This book is is cover to cover with you know with my handwriting basically to where it's it's almost ridiculous. There's like six pages of notes just on the front and back cover, and then within all the margins and everything else. Um, but it's it's an incredible book. It goes into all of uh, it has it's broken into three or four segments, and it basically covers sort of the mental models from biology, from psychology, and then from what they call mathematics and physics, and It contextualizes all of those mental models within the world of how people make mistakes and how people fail to understand those mental models in their decision-making process.
0: Wow, that sounds really interesting, but also very, very abstract. Now, would you happen to have a concrete example or story how this has helped maybe you personally?
1: Definitely. I mean, just within just within psychology alone, right? There's uh and that's and and before I before I dig into this, like that's that's the the message that I've been that I that I touched on earlier, right? There the reality is if you wanna be a smarter decision maker, if you wanna be able to filter signal from noise and tying back into the psychology of money, if you want to make smarter financial decisions, there's no shortcut. You know, wisdom takes time and energy and focus and thought, and you have to think a lot about it, and you have to do a lot of reading and thinking and digesting uh, and really and really come to grips with, like, understanding the fundamental building blocks of reality. But to come back and contextualize that for you, just within the, the sort of psychology of, uh, I think the phrase he uses is the psychology of misjudgment. There's an amazing YouTube speech uh, of Charlie Munger's that's about, an hour and 20 minutes long, and it's called like the 27 Standard Causes of Human Misjudgment, right? And he goes in and gives sort of like a 15 minute, or not 15 minute, probably like a five minute vignette about each of the different causes of misjudgment and how they can make you go wrong, right? You could go you could go down a rabbit hole on any one of those items, and there's tons of, of research studies and psychology experiments about uh, the vast majority of those biases right And I'll give you a couple examples like one of them would be um, the commitment and consistency bias right and that's the idea you you may have talked about this before but it's the idea that that really small and seemingly innocuous commitments that we make end up cascading into much larger commitments down the road because it changes our subconscious perception of ourselves. And there's an amazing experiment um, that they talk about in the book Influence by Robert Cialdini, which is also sort of one of the Bibles of uh, this school of thought. And and it it took place in like the 1960s or 1970s, and they they, they call it the Yard Sign Experiment. Basically, what they did was they would come – they did a test group where they would come and knock on people's doors, uh, just door to door, and they basically said, hey, would you put this giant – you know, it was a giant, really obtrusive billboard in your driveway that says drive safely. You know, and I'm, yeah, I'm sure some people have seen those, you know, those massive like wood frame signs. It, it's totally obnoxious, right? Um, and and a vast majority of the people said no, right? Like who who's going to do that out of the blue? They then did two sort of follow up uh, tests to that on different populations. One was a test where two weeks beforehand, they came by and asked people to put a, sticker on their window that said, drive safely, right? And then they came back two weeks later and asked them if they wanted to put the billboards up in their yard. 65% of people said yes and put these ridiculous billboards up in their yard, right? And the only difference being that they had made this really, really innocuous commitment weeks before that changed their subconscious perception of themselves. The other uh, test they did was they had someone come by and ask these people to sign a petition uh, just about being a concerned citizen. Nothing to do with driving at all. That had like a bump to, it was like 35 or 40 percent of people, um, and I don't remember the specifics, um, but 35 to 40 percent of people uh, put the sign up after they came back two weeks later and did it. So again, that's just one particular bias, and you can see that manifest uh, in your daily life all the time. You can see it in a financial context. Uh, you know, if you if you m- purchase a stock, you become sort of committed to it, something like that. Um, you can see it in, uh, you can use it to influence other people in the sense of you can get people to agree to really innocuous and seemingly simple commitments. And then after that, you sort of work them into, you know, the larger commitment that you eventually wanted them to get on board with. Um, there's, there's dozens more, you know, another, uh, I could keep rambling on about this. I'll give another brief example. Another one is denial, right? Denial is an incredibly powerful phenomenon. And the, the, the really simple way of understanding denial that I like to use to sort of describe it is that denial is basically if reality is too painful to bear, someone will distort reality until it's bearable, right? And you, if you can just grasp the mental model of denial, right? And both of these are examples of, of specific mental models that you want to build a toolkit of. For you, you know, to have dozens and dozens of these, so that when you're in a situation, you can start to understand and start to actually apply them. Uh, But denial, I mean, once if you just master the mental model of denial, you'll see it all the time in your daily interactions, where people are uh, in massive denial about you know things in a business context, people in their in their in a personal life, uh, in a financial context, etc. So those are just two examples, and I'm happy to. Uh, to drill down and give a couple more if you want to if you want to dig in, or we can uh, we can expand back out and talk about some other stuff,
0: yeah, let's tie it back to money. And in case there are some of the listeners who are, you know, maybe not as interested in 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 the science, the studies like Matt and I clearly am. Um, I would like you to think back to what he said initially about the blocking and the tackling because that's actually really useful. If you take nothing away apart from that, that I would like to expand upon because blocking and tackling kind of means that there is this aspect where you, in order to become a better decision maker, better with money, and also ultimately happier, there are some things that you need to keep away from yourself, but then there are other things which you have to go for with all your might. So in case you are a bit like, wait a minute, I didn't go to college, I don't understand what Matt is saying right now, hold on to the uh, blocking and the tackling for that. So I would like to tie this down very specifically now. Um, I enjoyed this excursion into decision-making, but I would like to drill it down now a little bit more to actual money because a lot of people have a very convoluted relationship with money, and I can happily include myself in that club. So do you have any ideas why that is?
1: Uh, You know, I'm I'm not a research psychologist, so I haven't dug into a lot of the sort of Sort of reasons why people have a convoluted relationship with money, but I would say that uh, one of the biggest barriers that I've seen in in my personal experiences and the people that I've interacted with, uh, really, there's two main sort of drivers. One is uh, a lack of basic financial literacy, and um, especially in the United States, there's there's very very little to no training. You know, people go through. Uh, they go through middle school high school and college in many cases and never learn how to read a balance sheet or or you know balance a budget or do really really fundamental basic blocking tackling of financial literacy on the psychology side and that and that the, the financial literacy piece right that goes back to those are all kind of basic really simple mental models that anybody out there is capable of mastering right and if you don't think you're capable of mastering it that ties into the psychology piece which uh, I think everybody out there has uh, a lot of limiting beliefs, both generally in their lives and also specifically around money, right? The I think one of the one of the biggest limiters to people's uh, financial well being is is having limiting beliefs around their personal finances, and so that can have a lot of different uh, that can, that can come in many different shapes and sizes. Uh, you know, a really simple one would be what I just touched on, which is the idea of, oh, I'm just not good with money, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Right. Like, wh- and, and I don't know if you've talked about limiting beliefs uh, before on the show, but uh, it's something that we dig into on Science of Success and have a couple episodes on. But basically, um, limiting beliefs are these kind of stories that we tell ourselves. And oftentimes they're stories that derive from, uh, early childhood experiences. You know, maybe maybe there was a situation when you were five or six years old, your parents were fighting about money. And so you, your very young child mind, planted this message, this story in your subconscious that was, oh, people fight about money. So I don't want to have to, I don't want to think about money. And so I'm just not going to deal with it. Right? Like those, those beliefs are buried deep in people's subconsciousness. And so really trying to uncover and pull those out and figure out what they are um, can be can make a huge shift in in your ability to manage your personal finances So the question and there's a, there's a series of questions you can basically ask yourself really simply to just start drilling down into why you are struggling from a personal finance standpoint right like why you struggle with whether it's saving or budgeting or investing or whatever it might be you can start, uh, and just and just ask yourself, you know, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to achieve, right? Start with a goal and then say, okay, from that goal, why haven't you done it? You know, why haven't you started budgeting? Why haven't you started saving? Why haven't you started investing? And you keep sort of doing a recursive analysis of those questions. You know, it's like, oh, okay, uh, I haven't started saving because I don't have enough money to save. Okay, why don't you have enough money to save? Oh, uh, because... You know, I don't have a budget, and I just you know spend money and don't really think about it. Okay, why don't you have a budget? Because I've never been good at math, and I don't understand Excel, and and I don't you know I don't know how to do budgeting. Right? That that's sort of a surface level limiting belief that you can get into. There's a that then that alone is two or three limiting beliefs that you could kind of break down and and really work on and reverse. Um, but. If you just tackle that belief that you're not good with money or that you're not good at budgeting or investing or whatever it might be and start to work on reversing that belief, what you'll see is, and and the reason that, that I'm talking about beliefs here, there's sort of a, a pyramid of, uh, of action and behavior, right? Uh, and it goes something like, your beliefs influence your thoughts, your thoughts influence your actions and your actions influence the results that you get in your life. Most people focus on changing things at the level of action, right? The reality, that's the lowest leverage place to change things because what happens is somebody goes, all right, I'm going to make this big change in my life. All right, I'm going to start, man, you know, keeping track of my money. I'm going to, I'm going to do a budget or whatever. And a month later, they've already stopped doing it, right? The reason is because they're focusing on changes at the action level. If you focus on making changes at the belief level, then that's going to cascade, change your thoughts. Those thoughts are going to change your actions and that's going to change the results that you get in your life. And so... Um, and we, I'm happy to drill down more so on how to both uncover and or reverse limiting beliefs. Um, but I mean you can have – it's a very broad topic because you can have limiting beliefs that go with sort of the saving side or even the, the making money side. It's you know, like why – if you want to make more money, why aren't you making more money? What beliefs do you have about yourself, about the world, about other people that are holding you back? And uh, there's there's a really good and one of the people that I love uh, who talks a lot about limiting beliefs is a guy named Vishen Lakhiani. Um, he's he's been on Science of Success before, but he's an entrepreneur uh, in. Uh, That started this company called Mind Valley, which is a company that's all about uh, sort of spirituality and and helping people with that sort of frontier. Um, Vision has been incredibly successful. He wrote this amazing book, I highly recommend checking out if you want to learn more about limiting beliefs, called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind. And in that, he tells a story of uh, his business, and he was struggling financially. Uh, and couldn't, you know, he, he, he'd sort of plod along for years, couldn't make any more money. And he sort of realized after doing some limiting belief work that he had this belief from his childhood that, uh, teachers, and he views himself as a teacher of spirituality, that teachers weren't supposed to make money. Right. And that's a perfect example of a limiting belief. Uh, and so he had had a childhood teacher in like the third or fourth grade that had, really struggled financially but was an amazing teacher and he had this belief that he was telling himself that teachers have to struggle financially or teachers can't make money and once he was able to reverse that belief uh, i think he says in 18 months his his business completely transformed and became financially very very successful um so that's again one sort of contextual example of limiting beliefs around money and i can i can share some more if we want to dig into that but Really starting with if, – if you're not executing on the, on the basics of, of kind of personal finance, I would investigate the psychology side of it and investigate what beliefs you may have about yourself, about your capabilities, about money, about what money means, about if you think money is evil or you think only greedy bad people have money. Those are all limiting beliefs that if you think only, you know you have to be greedy or evil or that money is bad or that only bad people have money at a subconscious level – you're self-sabotaging every opportunity you have to build wealth and and create financial success for yourself because at a subconscious level you don't want it. Whether you consciously think you want it or not, you're subconsciously creating all kinds of self-sabotage because of that belief.
0: Right, so yeah, I'd like to actually talk a little bit about that because I actually, I just went through kind of a lot of thinking around this because for me, and I'm going to be really open about this just because I want people to understand that it's not like, oh, you study these things and then you're done with it. You know, you're transformed and you're good to go. For me, for example, I I noticed not that long ago that I started thinking about, wait a minute, what are the things in my life that I'm successful about? And and wh- where where am I really happy with where, where I'm at? And where is it that I'm not so happy and where, where am I not? getting the results that I expected. And I actually took your approach, Matt, although we didn't know each other back then. And I started thinking about, okay, so so what distinguishes the things that I'm not that good with, and I will count money with that, um, the things that I am good with? You know, for example, I am good with the fact that I wake up every day and I have for, for a long time feeling that it's, it's very important what I'm doing and that I have an actual purpose in life. So that's something that goes really well in my life so I thought about well how is that different from my my philosophy of money and my first discovery was like bing 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 I don't have a philosophy of money I I in in the things that go well for me I have thought very clearly about what I want to achieve why it's important to me and with money I was like well um I grew up in this like financially kind of challenged household, but it's not as challenged as, I mean, I'm not talking about we didn't have anything to eat, but it was just very unclear. You know, you didn't know, well, would we get kicked out of the apartment? A little bit of that. But then again, suddenly my dad would get a lot of money. He suddenly had a Mercedes and he was clearly not that good with money. He was good with a lot of other things, but not with that. And for me, I just realized not that long ago that if I don't get my philosophy about money straight, that at some point, my life could take me like that could actually force me away from doing what I'm doing that I love the most which is you know doing psychology and uh, hopefully being self-employed but now I suddenly realized wait a minute I always thought that the solution to this is making more money but actually if you don't understand how to manage you know the money that you have you're gonna ruin it even if you get 10 million dollars so for me, I thought, okay, wait, what's the next step? All right. So once you know what your philosophy is, the next step is to have a plan of how to get there. And the third and also vital step is, and that's what you said before, sticking with it. How do I stick with it if things get difficult? And I just wanted to uh, disclose that kind of to my listeners just so that they see like the t- stuff that I talk about. I use it in my daily life to overcome my own challenges.
1: And I think you touched on s- uh, several really, really important points. The the first is the idea that wealth is a mindset, right? Wealth is not your bank balance. Wealth is how you approach and think about money. Um, and that concept alone can really sort of cascade through your life, right? The idea that people who are listening to this, that are thinking, oh, I don't care about money. Like, I don't want my life to be to be ruled by money. And, and you know, I'm not going to sit here and think about it all day. Like, why would I care about that stuff? That's not what life is about, right? The reality is people who have that belief, their entire life is ruled by their lack of understanding of money, right? Their life is controlled and constrained by their inability to understand the psychology of money, to understand the psychology of building wealth, the strategies around how to build wealth and uh, and what the sort of differences between uh, the different kind of wealth mindsets are, right? And that gets into some of the stuff that they talk about in, in Rich Dad, Poor Dad and other books like that. Um, but the just because you think, oh, life isn't about money, uh, I'm not going to, you know, spend all this time and energy thinking about it. The reality is a lot of people that have that mindset, their whole life whether they realize it or not, is actually constrained uh, and controlled by their lack of money.
0: Yes, I agree. I absolutely agree. And, And that's precisely why I started thinking about it more, because I thought, well, of course, I know that a rich life is about a lot of things. So for me, of course, it's not just about money a rich life is about purpose about for me it's a lot about experience for me a rich life is an interesting life so I got that part of my philosophy straight and but that I achieve so I do have a life that is very interesting for me however and that's precisely what you say if you kind of think like oh I'm you know I don't know how to do it so I'll just not do anything about it if if that's anything it doesn't matter if it's money or your health or there's something that you feel helpless about at some point, maybe it's not ruling you completely right now, but at some point it will completely take over. And, and that's not where you, where you want to be at, definitely not. So where do you want to go from here? Because I, I know that you have a lot of, you have so many interesting thoughts and I just also thought, let's, let's hand it over to you a little bit. What do you think we haven't covered yet that we absolutely should talk about in this context?
1: Um, I had kind of a crazy idea and, and, uh, I don't know if it makes sense or not, but I'd be curious, like, would you be interested in exploring and seeing if you have, or if we can uncover any limiting beliefs you have about money right now?
0: Yes, let's do that because that's precisely the scary stuff that people, you know, it's not very honest if I say like, you have to go through your mindset and your philosophy and I don't dare to do it. So I love that idea. I wonder how it didn't occur to me, but yeah, let's do it.
1: All right, cool. So, um, you know, and I think the goal here is not necessarily to reverse these beliefs, but just to uncover them. Um, and then, you know, I'm, you, it, you probably already have a framework or kind of a methodology for reversing them. But if not, I can at least share with you the, the method that I like to use that it's been relatively effective. Um, we but definitely
0: want to get into your method as well, because people might not, you know, I might not have shared it in that way that you have. I have talked about mindset and beliefs a lot, but not in the way you have. So let's go there anyway.
1: Perfect. All right. Well, we'll we'll pull a couple out and then we'll just I'll just share kind of the framework. I mean, it it's not something you can do in like a in a 20 minute Skype conversation. It's deep personal work. You know, when I've when I've been working on reversing limiting beliefs and it's not just like a one time thing. Right. But but I've literally broken down into tears and crying and, and like really thinking about some of the core ideas and beliefs that have ruled my entire life and so um you know i'll share the framework but uh i think the most productive thing now would just be let's like let's just pull some beliefs out get a couple and then you know share with people the framework you can use to to kind of smash them so let's start with again let's start with the goal like what do you financially what do you want to achieve and it doesn't have to be specific numbers but just um you know let's say in the next in the next three to five years like Financially, where do you want to be?
0: I want to be wholly self-employed. So I want to be able to live life, you know, go traveling every once in a while and be self-employed completely support myself with doing positive psychology
1: And what is constraining you from doing that right now?
0: Um, well, I feel that I need to grow into it a bit. I'm not I've only in the last couple of months, like figured out things which really make a lot of sense for me. So now what's holding me back is simply that if I would quit my job today, I would not have money to to pay my rent. You know, it's, it, would, it would not be nearly enough. So that's kind of what's holding me back.
1: So right now you don't have enough, the, the, the sort of podcasting world or the, the positive psychology world isn't generating enough revenue for you to do it full time, right? Yes. So what would need to happen for you to get enough revenue to do it full-time?
0: I think different things. So for me, what I'm thinking is I want to have different income streams. So one of them would definitely be to – I actually enjoy freelance teaching. And um, so I teach at the community college. So I'd maybe get a few more gigs like that. Um, The other revenue stream would be to have a few more coaching clients – and the third that I'm probably most excited about would be you know, I'm, I'm just about to have to record, record my first audiobook, and I actually want to do quite a few of them. So once, like, once I get going with that, um, I think that can also help me get there.
1: And I know you've been making a lot of headway on the book, and I, you have like a, a, a Kickstarter campaign or something like that for it, right?
0: It's not It's not Kickstarter, but, but yeah, kind of. A, I just pre-sold it on Gumroad. A uh, uh,
1: yeah. crowdfunding campaign, yeah, yeah. sorry. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I think the book, it seems like you're making a lot of traction there. Um, coaching clients. Do you have any coaching clients now?
0: Yes, but not, it's like one or two every once in a while. It's really not, um, it's not a lot. And what I discovered there is I was also, similarly with the money, I was very confused as to what kind of coach I want to be and I also only realized that very recently because I was starting out with strengths coaching but then I felt like it doesn't represent the kind of depth that I like to have so I had to do quite a bit of soul searching on that as well and all these things into incidentally happen in the last three months so yeah
1: so what what do you need to do to get more let's say to, to get 10 regular coaching clients what do you need to do
0: I think probably the biggest, the biggest obstacle for me is really that I find it hard to like market and ask for the sale and like all that kind of stuff. So I, I have like a big time hang ups about that. Like for me, I'm I'm good with like, you know, I, I love the the psychology part of it. Not so excited about the marketing part of it. Although, however, I am now thinking about it in a way that I'm thinking like, all right, so use the positive psychology that you've learned to tackle marketing. So now I'm thinking about things like, all right, how can you make this fun, like in ways that you would enjoy and that are not sleazy? And I'm, I'm, I am I'm, think I'm slowly, slowly getting there, but there's a big learning curve to be had.
1: So you've already started touching on this, but we've identified our first, what I'll call a surface level limiting belief. And that's that you find it hard to market and, and go for the sale, right? That that's a belief you could work on, but it's going to be much more effective to work on the deeper belief, which you already touched on, um, but but by saying that you think it's sleazy to sell, right? So tell me, why do you think it's sleazy to sell?
0: No, I don't think selling things yeah well I don't know I, no actually I know exactly all right so one of it is I hate it because it's so cliche like it actually goes back to my childhood and and my father he was a uh he was like a marketing I'm not sure what it's called in English so like the marketing specialist kind of uh self-employed guy and he did a lot of like cold calling and all that kind of stuff and and I don't know, like I always felt like these people don't want to be called there. He had he was like chasing and pursuing them and they I didn't feel like they wanted that. And I just felt that his life was kind of always chasing people who kind of didn't want that. So I clearly don't want that for myself. So I'm thinking about, well, I am confident that there's a way to do marketing in a way that, you know, goes with my values. Um, but I'm kind of getting there slowly, slowly as to how you do that.
1: So I think that's that's a really good belief to kind of at least think about this framework with, right? And that's sort of the idea that, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you could sort of phrase it. But the, the notion or the idea that uh, you you have this childhood experience of what you perceive as sales being kind of uh, maybe not sleazy, but, but just sort of a negative connotation, harassing people. People don't want to hear it. They don't want to be bothered, you know, all of this stuff, right? All these things are sort of the the different manifestations or descriptions of this kind of core belief that 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 you're that you think sales is let's just say sleazy, but you know, I'm not not necessarily describing your dad that way, but you just think sales is sleazy from a childhood experience, right? Right. So the, you know, the way there's a four question framework that I personally use to break down limiting beliefs. Right. The first, is, and I'll just run through the four questions and then kind of contextualize it around this idea specifically. So the first is is this true, right? And it's just a simple question, yes or no. Like, is this true, right? The next question is, can I absolutely know this is true, right? And this is sort of in like a universal truth sense. Like, can I know without, you know, is there ever any context or any situation that's ever happened where this was not true, right? Or or is it true in every single instance, every single case? Uh, And the third question is, who, who am I because of this belief? And the fourth question is, who would I be without this belief, right? And what you want to do is basically journal on each of those questions. The first two obviously take very little time, but the next two you can really – I mean, I've written pages and pages and pages on beliefs before about just those two questions. And then at the end of that, uh, you want to choose a new belief that is more – Uh, positive and empowering right and so just looking at the first question right like is it sleazy to sell you could probably you know the the initial cursory you could say sure like it's kind of sleazy to cold call people whatever but then we say can you absolutely know that it's true right the question I would sort of look at is like has there ever been a situation you know on planet earth where somebody sold something and somebody was absolutely and the other person was absolutely ecstatic loved the experience loved buying it had a great time enjoyed what they were doing and you know everybody had an awesome time and I think we could both probably agree that yes that has happened in the history of the planet right like there have been probably many many times where somebody where there was like a sales situation that wasn't high pressure it wasn't sleazy it wasn't weird it wasn't aggressive it wasn't awkward um, and both parties got a lot of value out of it right because that's really and I mean I'm not a sales expert per se but I've you know I've read a number of books on it but like that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day is like if you believe that that you know you're creating value for the person that you're selling this product to then it's definitely worthwhile to to try and get them to purchase it right and if it's meeting their needs and something that they actually really need and would benefit from then it's great for them to be sold on whatever it might be but you know again there's a lot more work that can can be done on all these questions you know just cursorily looking at like the third one right who are you with that belief you know you're still working in your in your other job, you're not full-time, you don't have enough coaching clients, right? You kind of want to paint this picture that really kind of hits home at a subconscious level about uh, why your life is, you know, wh- why it's where you don't want it to be, right? And then who would you be without this belief? You want to paint this amazing picture of, Life would be amazing. I'd have coaching clients. I'd have books all over the place. I'd, you know, doing some amazing freelance teaching gigs. I would be uh, totally financially independent. I'd be loving, I'd be waking up every single day, super excited to be helping people, to be talking about positive psychology, to be changing the world, right? And you really want to paint this huge picture. And that framework for me at least has been a really helpful framework to to kind of chip away at these limiting beliefs, right? Because Limiting beliefs, we, we can consciously express them, but really where they reside and live is in our subconscious, right? And so to, to get rid of them, and that's why these questions are phrased in like a certain way, to get rid of them, you have to sort of dislodge them out of the subconscious and you have to undermine what's supporting that belief, right? And right now, there's this this feeling and image from your childhood that is sustaining that belief. But when you show yourself, you know, one, this might not even really be true, and two, Right now, this belief is is disempowering me. And three, I could have this amazing life uh, if I could just work on reversing this belief or you know, if I didn't have this belief, right? Because you can choose to have, like beliefs are and one of the things that, again, this is just a belief, but beliefs are neither true nor false. They're just things that you hold to be true in your subconscious. And so you can pluck them out, change them, put new beliefs in, whatever it might be, whenever you want. And if a belief is disempowering you, I would highly recommend ripping it out and just putting a more empowering belief in place.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So thank you for doing that. I hope people get a little bit more clarity about how they can target their limiting beliefs and how they can improve their decision making, whether it's concerned with money or not, doesn't really matter. Now, Matt, do you have anything else that you would like to touch on?
1: Uh, I mean, there's there's tons and tons of stuff I could talk about, but I think this has been a, a great conversation. I know we've uh, we've given a lot of different perspectives and resources uh, for listeners who want to kind of dive in and do some homework on this. Um, so I think it was a great conversation.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much. Now, where can people find you and your podcast?
1: Uh, so my podcast is called The Science of Success, um, and it's just at scienceofsuccess.co. That's scienceofsuccess.co. And uh, I have a couple different uh, episodes specifically around limiting beliefs. And we actually also have an interview with Vishen Lakhiani, who, uh who is one of the, I recommended his book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, um, where we dig into all of that stuff. So if, if people want to do some homework on limiting beliefs, uh, there's some really cool episodes on that. Uh, and I also, there's another blog that I think is is highly worth checking out. It's a blog called Farnham Street, um, which is by a guy named Shane Parrish. And that blog is all about Making better decisions. It's one of my favorite blogs of all time. We've also had Shane uh on the show and did a really cool interview with him. Um so yeah, if you just go to science or you can just look search for science of success on iTunes, uh you can find it. Um and we do we we really drill down a lot of the stuff we talked about today.
0: All right, cool. Let's do that. Thank you very awesome. much, Matt.
1: Thank you so much, Kristen. It's been awesome to be on here.
0: Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. Cheers. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt. Now we have a couple of reviews. I will read three of them to you right now. Amelie writes Hello, I got interested in positive psychology just about a year ago, and this podcast is the best resource I ever found. It is not only an endless resource of inspiration for me, but also the most complete selection of different topics of positive psychology, which gives me the chance to find areas I want to concentrate on. I have to admit, I rarely took such an inconsistent approach to what I'm interested in, which means I presume that she just jumps around and doesn't focus on one area of positive psychology over another. Thanks for this excellent podcast. Keep it up. You are a gift to the world. Thank you very much, Amelie. And I don't think that's anything you have to admit. When things are exciting, we jump around, and that's exactly the way it should be. Suburban Mama from the USA says True gem of a podcast. I work evenings and love listening to positive, uplifting, and informative podcasts. I found this a couple of weeks ago and have listened to almost all past episodes. I find something relatable in every single segment. I love that it gives me the opportunity to reflect on my life and grow all while walking at work. Great podcast. I recommend it to all my friends. Looking forward to future episodes. Thank you so much, Suburban Mama, like as in herb, not in suburb. Thank you very much for that compliment and thank you so much for spreading the good news. And then finally, we have Amy Kate. S twenty three, who says thank you Kristen for creating this awesome podcast. I've been listening for about six months, and you consistently deliver such awesome and interesting material. For anyone who is genuinely interested in understanding how to live the good life, I would highly recommend your podcast. I get really excited every time I see an episode to uh, download it. Thank you very much, Amy K. I'm excited every time I get here and sit in front of the microphone and listen to the tone. And it's so great to know that it resonates with you and that you find consistent value. I'm, that's really a compliment that I treasure because it's one thing to put out one or two things that are good, but it's pretty great if I, you know, to hear that you guys enjoy it over time. So thank you so much for sharing these insights and these reviews with me. I'm honored to have you guys on this journey. Alright, so talk to you soon. Bye bye Alright, so I played brainwash to Myrtle, and here's what she said. As far as I'm concerned, all this poverty cock babble is about as useful as a three-legged bomb cat trying to bury its poop on a frozen lake. Oh man, Myrtle, come on. I was hoping for something more positive, you know, to... Uh, to sell more books, you know. You wait, young lady. Well, I'll be a Monkey's Auntie if this fixes anybody. But I do say I appreciated the wild love. In fact, I created the brainwashers, Guide to Wild Creatures and Imaginative Objectives. You see, if you're not as careful, you can miss all the references, focus on all your crazy shit and all. Uh, Myrtle, I'm um, sorry, but Trying to keep the show clean. Oh, yes. Okay. I was saying the book has everything domestic animals, wild animals, and I believe there were some references to Pope as well. Oh, that's very kind, Myrtle. Um, so, well, any other reasons why people should, um, buy it? Oh, yes. Plenty. I mean, like almost all the narrators in there. There's a lab scientist from California, a British documentary filmmaker, and I think I also heard that Sebastian Crab from Ariel the Mermaid talking something about body odor and a funky accent. I took the book to my bingo club. The place went all firecracker and frog's legs over it, I tell you that. One of the nurses had to step in. There was just too much excitement. First time bingo was interrupted at end prematurely. In that way, I believe it was quite historical. So well done, sugar honey. Could you tell people where they could get it, Myrtle? You know, for those who want a little bit more excitement at their retirement home, for example? Well, sure, love. It's gum.co slash brainwash.
1: Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yoghurt.